0: Chapter 12. Nehemiah, chapter 12, please. And as you're turning there, we're going to be capturing the last few verses of chapter 12 and then launching into chapter 13 in its entirety as we conclude the series on Nehemiah. I'm excited about concluding this series. I'm excited about how God wants to speak to us today as a church. And, um, the title of this message is, Worship Matters. Worship Matters. Really, you could, you could subtitle this, The Marks of a Worshipper. And if you have your notes there, you, if you wanted to put that little subtitle in there, The Marks of a Worshipper. But the, the, the message is, Worship Matters. And I want to begin with prayer. I want to begin with prayer. So just, if you wouldn't mind, just join me in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity that you have given me this morning To share your word with your people. My confidence, Father, is that this is your word, these are your people, and your spirit is here. And you are building your church. You are forming a worshiping community. You are taking people who were idolaters and worshiped everything to include themselves other than you, and you are transforming them into worshipers of you, worshipers of God through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you, Father. You are already working. And I just pray right now, you would would now pour out your grace, your spirit, for the gift of teaching to flow from me to serve my friends. And that there would be be a sense of attention, non-distraction, and seriousness as we hear from you about being worshipers. In Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks ago, I had the privilege to preach at Sovereign Grace Church of Greenville, South Carolina, pastored by my good friend Jim Britt. Now, Jim lives on 13 acres there in Greenville. It takes him one full day to mow his acreage. Now, John and Christine are part of Jim's church, and they as well live on a farm. Now, their farm has goats and livestock, and so because I was with Manolito Fonseca, the Cuban pastor, and because he wanted to milk a goat, we went and visited John and Christine on their farm. Now, in addition to goats, John and Christine have horses, uh, they have cows, they have many chickens, and they have these huge dogs that guard all the livestock, and especially the chickens, from coyotes. Okay, so like, I'm like in the Wild West in my mind. So we pull up to John and Christine's house, and we see their little nine-year-old daughter, Sarah, and their six-year-old son, Levi. They come running up to us, and I come to find out that Levi and Sarah help with the daily chores of the farm. As a matter of fact, Sarah was, was taking care of the horses. Six-year-old Levi was interacting with us while he's calming, f- calmly fi- uh, feeding a calf. And then he proceeds to herd all the goats in, gives them their food, and then proceeds to milk them. And the way that's done is he expertly attaches these milking machines to the goats, all the while talking to us as if it's like this is normal life for a six-year-old. Now, folks, I'm from Miami, Florida, okay? I felt like I was on the moon. But I received quite the education as to what the daily life of a South Carolina farmer is like. I was clueless until that day. Today's message, dear friends describes what the daily life of a worshiper of God looks like. And sometimes the daily life of a worshiper of God can be as foreign to us as the daily life of a South Carolina farmer was to me. And that's not a good thing. See, this message, this text today is designed to remedy this very dangerous situation. This message is all about worshiping God as his covenant people and what that looks like because worship matters. It matters to God and it should matter to us. See, God sent Nehemiah to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city and reform the people under his covenant so that they would worship him before a watching world. And God sent Jesus into the world to rebuild our lives and reform us under the covenant, his new covenant, so that we would worship him before a watching world. So, what does it look like for you to worship God? That's the main question of this message. You'll find it if you have notes at the top of your notes. What does it look like for you to worship God? And I believe that this passage gives us three marks of a worshiper. Three marks of a worshiper. As a matter of fact, these three marks of a worshiper... Don't just begin with this passage. These three marks of a worshiper begin with Genesis chapter 1 and move all the way to Revelation, the final book of the Bible. These three marks of a worshiper, actually you'll find them in an earlier chapter in this book, in chapter 10. What are the three marks? And these will be the three points of our message. Number one, you worship God when you care for his house. You worship God when you care for his house. You want to show me a worshiper of God? Show me someone who cares for his house. Number two. You worship God when you keep His commandments. You worship God when you keep His commandments. A worshiper of God is not one who lives a lifestyle of breaking His commandments, but one who lives a lifestyle of keeping His commandments. And number three, you worship God when you keep your heart for Him alone. You worship God when you keep your heart for Him alone. Now, these three marks of a worshiper, you should find familiar. Because in chapter 10... When, when when Israel renewed covenant, these were the three things they promised they would do. In chapter 10, verse 30, they promised they would keep their heart for God alone by not marrying foreign women who would bring their foreign gods into Israel and steal their hearts away from God. In chapter 10, verse 31, they promised that they would obey God's commandment by obeying the Sabbath because they've been breaking it, not working or buying On the Sabbath. And number three, they promised. They promised that they would worship God by caring for his house. In 10.39 it says, we will no longer neglect your house. So these three marks of a worshiper are how Israel is is actually portrayed in chapter 12, verse 44. If you look at chapter 12, verse 44, you'll see this says, on that day. And then again in chapter 13, verse 1, on that day. And this would be an appropriate time to put those two verses up on the screen. 12.44, on that day. And thirteen one on that day. What day? These two, this little little historical interlude, 12.44 to 13.3, is provided for us right after the day of dedication that Hosea preached about last week. Right after the day that they dedicate the walls, and they shout so loud that it goes out throughout the land, and they worship God in an exuberant service, Now, 1244 to 13.3, describe the daily life of a worshiper. And what you see in those verses is simply a people that are caring for God's house. They're providing for the Levites, for the priests. They're serving in God's house. You will find a people that are keeping God's commandments. It says in those verses that the Lord gave them commandments by David and Solomon, and they kept them. And you'll find a people that are keeping themselves for God alone by separating from the pagans who bring their pagan gods. All is well. God's covenant community is formed. Nehemiah's job is done. End of the book. Right? Wrong. I don't know why. But the book doesn't end there. The book does not end there. Because Nehemiah takes up his first-person memoirs, his first-person account in chapter 13, verse 4. And the reason he takes up that first-person memoir, chapter 13, verse 4, is because years later, we find Israel failing to worship God. They are failing to care for his house. They are failing to keep his Sabbath commandment. They are failing to keep their hearts for God alone because they've married the foreign wives and taken their foreign gods. So today we want to look carefully and closely at these three biblical marks of a worshiper. And we want to try to understand how Israel failed to worship God by failing in these three areas, understanding that we too are tempted as God's people today in God's house today, the church, to fail to worship God when we fail in these areas. And we want to begin with the first mark of a worshiper. In your notes you'll see there, it says that we, you worship God when you care for his house. When you care for his house. So look at chapter 13, verse 4. Let us ask God, as we read this, for the grace to see where we're failing and then see the remedy that God provides in these passages. Chapter 4 Chapter 13 verse 4. Now I'm going to be reading a, a chunk of scripture here from verse 4 down to verse 14. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders. And they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Verse 11, key phrase. So I confronted the officials, and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Verse 12. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, pedadiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of, son of Zachor, the son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Verse 14, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Friends, these verses describe God's people after the glorious dedication of the wall. As a matter of fact, look at verse 6 again. Probably 12 to 14 years later. You see verse 6? While thus this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. Well, remember, in, in Nehemiah 1.1, 1, 1, Nehemiah first came to Jerusalem in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah has been there 12 years. What we're reading here is the description of God's people 12 to 14 years after the joyous dedication of the wall. 12 to 14 years after they had renewed covenant in chapter 10 and said, hey, man, we will not marry foreign wives, we will not break the Sabbath, and we will not neglect God's house. They've done all three. They've done all three. They have neglected the house. They have married the foreign wives and they have broken covenant. And all this happened while, while Nehemiah was back with the king, probably in Susa, about 700 miles away, the summer capital of the kingdom. You see, when when they committed to renew covenant with God, in chapter 10... In verse 39, they committed, we will not neglect the house of our God. Why? Because, point one, you worship God when you care for his house, dear friends. You worship God when you care for his house. Listen, you care for God's house and you care for God. You do not care for God's house. You do not care for God. Do not tell me you care for God and you care nothing for his house. It is impossible. A churchless Christianity is a lie. Impossible. It is a figment of your imagination. Israel had stopped caring for God's house. They drifted over 14 years. It's interesting. We're going to celebrate our 14th anniversary this coming January. Have you drifted? Have I drifted in this first mark of a true worshiper of God? You see, they neglected God's house. Why? Because they compromised with the pagan world around them. Look again at Nehemiah thirteen four through six. In Nehemiah's absence, Elishab, the priest, who's related to Tobiah, we'll get to that in a little while. Why is he related to a forbidden person, an Ammonite, a foe, an enemy? He lets this guy come into the temple. He cleans out the temple of what it's supposed to be rightly used for, the frankincense and the tithes, and he lets this guy move his stuff in. Tobiah, an enemy of God, is in the house of God, and his personal belongings take precedence over the frankincense for God and the tithes for his ministry. He's desecrating the house of God. They are not caring for the house of God. Who are the Tobias who are trespassing in your house? You understand that you're the temple of God, but not just you alone. We are the temple of God. We're the house of God today. Where have we allowed Tobiah to set up a room in our house and thereby tempt us to neglect the church? Where are we compromising with the world in such a way that we're allowing it to take precedence over God, his house his church. Now, it says in verse 7 here that Nehemiah returns from Susa, from, from being with the king, and he throws Tobiah out of the temple. He cleanses the chambers. He brings back those chambers in the house of God for the purposes of God. What a picture of Christ. Don't you understand that 400 years later, Jesus in Mark 11 comes back to the temple, and he, he walks into that temple in Mark eleven fifteen. And he begins to drive out those who sold, those who bought in the temple. He overturned tables of the money changers. I wish I could have seen that. Jesus was a man. And he got angry here. And it was righteous anger. Why? Because he says these, these men are taking the house of God and they're turning it into a den of robbers. Has your life been turned into a den of robbers? And do you need to get radical? and a little bit upset at Tobiah. Friends, Jesus comes to cleanse our temples, our church of the defilements and the Tobias that cause us to neglect or not care for his house. But that wasn't the only way. That wasn't the only way that they were neglecting God's house. Remember, we're on the first mark of a worshiper. A worshiper is one who cares for God's house. Do you know how else they were neglecting God's house? They failed in their covenant community. Covenant commitment to give to God's house. Look at verse 10. please. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. See, the result of them not caring for God's house is that God's servants, the Levites, couldn't feed themselves anymore. Caring for God's house is practical. It means bringing your money to the house of God so that you can provide for the servants of God that God put in there and it was so bad that they weren't providing, so the Levites had to eat, so they left serving God in the temple to go work in the fields, so they could eat. Today, today there are those who rob God of his tithes. You know, it's funny. We either try to bribe God with our tithes, or we rob him. He requires worshipers to care, and care is communicated by our wallets, by our service. Friends, I I thank those of you who have faithfully worshipped God over these last 14 years and cared for his house by giving joyously, not grudgingly. But the reality is that some don't. And as a result, the Levites have to go out in the field and work. There are administrators that we would love to hire right now that we just can't for the work of the service of the house of God here. We just don't have the resources. See, God intends for his church to be cared for. He says, if you care for me, you'll care for my church. And the church is the pillar in support of truth. The church is where the gospel goes out. And to do that, workers are needed. Workers are needed who can devote themselves. They're called called men and women of God. Nehemiah, look at verse 11. Nehemiah confronts the officials. And verse 11 introduces to us a heavenly courtroom. Oh, yes. When Nehemiah says in verse 11, so I confronted the officials, that word in the Hebrew, confront, has the sense of a court case. God is presiding in the heavenly court. My friends, we are in that court. And Nehemiah here is the prosecuting attorney. And he's prosecuting the officials who have refused to give, have refused to care for God's house and he's bringing them up on charges. Much like this passage may bring some of us up on charges. May we respond as they responded. Oh, friends, look at verse 11. After the confrontation, what happens? We see from verse 11 to 13 that the people respond. Nehemiah begins to bring in the tithes, and the tithes in Judah are collected, and ministers are appointed, and administrators are set in place. They're set into their stations. Friends, what that's talking about is that we can begin to deploy and employ administrators and pastors and church planners for gospel ministry to go forth to all the nations. God's calling us as worshipers to give and to serve gladly and willingly. And where we fail, and where we fail, God gives grace. Look at verse 14. Look at Nehemiah's prayer in verse 14. Remember me, O my God, do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Folks, this is filled with grace. The word there, good deeds, that phrase, those two words, that word in the Hebrew is hesed. And hesed speaks of covenant love. This is covenant language. It is a word that speaks of remembering God's covenant love, as Jose preached last week, and rejoicing and celebrating with him. But when we remember it, we just don't sing real loud and clap and jump up and down. Let's do that. But then we give and we serve. See, it's covenant love that responds with covenant deeds of faithfulness based on God's covenant love to me first in Christ. Christ. When Nehemiah says, Remember me, he's not merely asking God to recollect or recognize his deeds. No, friends, that's never was never in Nehemiah's mind. He was a covenant man. No, no. He is saying, God, intervene with your grace. He's reminding God of the covenant. Because he knows his deeds are going to be lacking. He's human. He's he's a failure in many sense, like all of us are. We're sinners. God's perfect. But he's saying, God, come with your enabling covenant love to enable me, empower me to obey. If you're not caring for God's house, if you're not giving and serving with joy, then pray this prayer and ask God for help. Why? Because you see, Nehemiah, Nehemiah lived as if one day God would return and settle all accounts. And on that day, he will remember what you did and didn't do. He will remember your service and your lack of service. Do you live like Nehemiah did? Ever conscience that God will return and remember what you did for his house? And on that day, for what will you be remembered? The second mark of a worshiper there in your notes. You worship God when you keep his commandments. You worship God when you keep his commandments. Let's read together. This is a great section here. Verses 15 to 22. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads and, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day, on the day when they sold food. Tyrenians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods. Notice the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. And sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. I think Nehemiah was half Cuban. Verse 17, or Puerto Rican, or whatever your country is. Look at verse 17. Courtroom. Here's a courtroom case. Judge, boom. Charge number two against your people, and I confronted. Do you see that in verse 17? That's legal language. And I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them, and I said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And he's not talking about praying for them. <laughs> From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates. Oh, we need to guard the gates, friends. To keep the Sabbath day holy. Prayer number two. Remember. This also in my favor, oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. The Jews were regularly violating a key commandment of God. They are ignoring their commitment of 14 years earlier to keep the Sabbath. They're not only working on the Sabbath, they are buying, doing business on the Sabbath. They're buying and selling fish, probably at the fish gate, on the wall, on the Sabbath. You see, friends, keeping the Sabbath speaks to the distinctiveness of God's people. It speaks of obeying God, trusting God. The Sabbath, quoting from uh, Mr. Fensom, who is a commentator I've been reading, the Sabbath was a day to acknowledge the Lord as creator and to give all the honor to him for a successful week. You see, it was the mark that distinguished the people as worshipers of God. But now, his people were violating that mark, violating that command, and acting like the pagans. Around them who did not know God. Where are you breaking God's commandments on a regular basis? Just giving into it, no fight left, and thus losing your distinctiveness as God's people and dishonoring the very name of God by which you are identified and for which you live? Where are you regularly failing to trust and obey God? Now look at verse 17. Again, Nehemiah confronts the nobles of Judah in 17. This is now the second charge he brings up against God's people. What is his testimony? Well, he turns to Nehemiah 10, verse 31, and he says, you guys agreed 14 years ago to keep the Sabbath. You're breaking it. Remember Remember what they agreed? They said, oh, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them. We will not break the Sabbath. And here they were, 14 years later, forgot the commandment, breaking the Sabbath A good fish sandwich takes good on the Sabbath. So I think I'll just go make me one or buy one or trade with someone who's selling one. You see, Nehemiah reminded them that this covenant disobedience, this is crazy, in verse 18 he says, Guys, don't you remember? Hello? We just came back from exile. We just rebuilt all the walls that were destroyed. We just rebuilt the temple that was destroyed. Do you remember why all this stuff was destroyed and why you went into exile? Because you broke this law 150 years ago, actually even further back. And then 19 to 22, he takes action, man. He takes action to stop this practice. He commands that the gates be closed on the Sabbath. He stations his servants at the gates. He even has the Levites guard the gates. Friends, we need one another. We need one another. We need godly leadership in our lives to guard the gates of our hearts, to guard the gospel, so that we would live the gospel, not just talk about it, but we'd live it. I'm sure they talked about the Sabbath. I'm sure they sang about the Sabbath, but they broke the Sabbath. I need you. You need me. We need one another. I mean, he gets violent here. He tells them, I'm going to lay hands on you. I'm going to violently, forcibly evict you. If you don't stop, what they would do is they would camp out right outside the gates. They'd close the doors of the gates, and then right outside the gates on the Sabbath, which was, for them, began Friday night at sundown and ended Saturday night. So they'd camp right there and make all the noise they could. And it would be tempting the Jews inside. And he says, you keep doing that, and I'm going to hurt you. And They left. And they left. Folks, do we need to take violent action against the world, Satan, even our own flesh, and evict them? They're trespassers. Now notice his prayer, second prayer, in verse 22b. Put that up there, please. That second prayer in verse 22, at the end of that verse. Verse. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. This phrase, steadfast love, once again we find the Hebrew word chesed. Only this time, it's not Nehemiah's covenant love deeds, but it's God's covenant love deeds. It's God's covenant faithfulness. You see, Nehemiah's only hope is God, because he knows he can't obey the commandment perfectly. Even if he obeyed the Sabbath perfectly, which he probably didn't because in his heart I'm sure he probably broke it, he couldn't obey all the commandments. The Sabbath keeping was only one of ten. And if you break one, you break them all. So he's relying on God's covenant faithfulness. He's saying, oh Lord, my hope is that you will remember your covenant love. And you will help me to defeat the enemies outside the gates of my heart, Satan and the world, and the enemy that's within the gates of my heart, my flesh so that I would be a worshiper of you. He cried out to God, I pray you would as well. Mark number three, third mark now, of a worshiper of God, is found in verses 23 to 29. This is the mark that says, I will keep my heart for God alone. I will keep my heart for God alone. Let's read it together. And in these verses, Nehemiah goes from simply threatening violence to actually being violent. So, of course, I love these verses. In those days, also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Verse 25, here's court case number three. Your Honor, the third charge against your people. And I confronted them and cursed them. Now, I'm going to explain that, okay? So it's not cursing them out, all right? Okay. Okay. And cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair, and I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, "Quote." And he's quoting here from the Old Testament, starting all the way in Deuteronomy. He's quoting from chapter ten in 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 verse thirty one. Thirty, when they said they wouldn't marry these foreign women. He's quoting there. He made them make this oath again. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And then he gives a biblical Old Testament example of how this practice is so deadly. Verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there is no king like him. And he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, important word, nevertheless... Foreign women made him to sin, even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Verse 28. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elishib, the high priest, this is an example of how bad it was, the son, the grandson of the high priest, married the daughter of Sanballat, their sworn enemy. And what did Nehemiah do? He chased him away. Maybe he beat him. I don't know how he chased him away. Let your imagination run with it. But he chased him away. Friends, the third mark of a worshiper of God is you worship God when you keep your heart for him alone. We've mentioned now their covenant commitment in 1030 to not take the daughters of the foreign gods and the foreign peoples and not give their daughters. See, this commitment, friend, it deals with the temptation of serving idols that intermarriage speaks to and spoke to back then. It talks about, it exposes spiritual adultery, or what we call idolatry. And this is made so clear by the illustration that Nehemiah gives with Solomon in verse 26. Solomon, who was beloved of God, Solomon, whom, whom God himself made king, this man sinned the sin of idolatry by marrying those foreign wives. Jot this down, 1 Kings 11, verses 3 and 4. 1 Kings 11, 3 and 4. Listen, Listen to what the Bible says. Solomon's foreign wives turned his heart against God toward other gods. 1 Kings 11.3, He, Solomon, had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4, And for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Where is your heart? Is it wholly True? Are you sitting there right now worshiping your God, whatever that is in your mind? Whatever takes your heart, distracts you even from this message. Are you wholly true to God? One day, he will require it of you. He really will. You're hearing my voice. He's serious about worship. It really does matter to him. So so Nehemiah brings him into the courtroom. Verse 25, he gets violent with them. As we said, he curses them. It wasn't a curse like cursing you out. Here's the curse. Remember in chapter 10, they took an oath and a curse? It was that kind of curse. He was warning them. If you persist in this, this is what will happen. But he does beat them. (laughs) And he pulls out their hair. I don't know about that one, okay? Maybe this is MMA fighting. They're in the clutch, you know, he's grabbing. Who knows? But it is violent because this is worship because worship matters and these people are worshiping other gods friends we are worshipers that's how god made us the question isn't whether we're going to worship but whom or what we're going to worship we were created by god to worship him but in our hearts is a deadly disease of rebellion against god's command to worship him friends we're all adulterers in our hearts look in the mirror and says i am an adulterer because we do not worship god all the time I love my wife all the time. Just an occasional affair. Yeah, you're called an adulterer. And it's not funny, it's sad. Would you want to be married to someone like that? You know, I'm I'm faithful 98% of the time. (laughs) It's just that one or two, you know, two times a year. Friends, this is so serious. We live for the cravings and desires of our fallen nature. And in doing so, we worship at the altar of sin and self and pleasure and others. and Anything else we look to other than God for life. Boyfriends, girlfriends, jobs, money. For me, the size of this church. My reputation. Oh, how I battled with that this week. I'm an adulterer. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. Spiritual adultery. It's a graphic and sad and disgusting picture, is it not? I know some of you have been sadly victims of that. I know perhaps you have victimized others. And you know how, how much it hurts. How horrible it is. This is what we do to God. This is what we do to God. Friends, divorce those foreign wives. Who are they in your life? What is it in your life that draws your heart away from God, that keeps your heart from loving Him alone? Oh, friend, love God, love Him alone. What's at stake is the future, your future, the future of this church, the gospel going forth. Look at verse 24. You want to see something sad? I mean, Nehemiah's been gone a while, so they've been able to marry these women and have children with these women. And Look how, what verse 24, how he describes the children of God's people and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah. What a sad spiritual state. The spiritual adultery births, births these bastard children that cannot speak the language of Judah. And I'm speaking spiritually now, metaphorically. They can't speak Hebrew, literally, physically. And Hebrew is the language in which the Bible at that time was written. So therefore, quoting from Derek Kidner, The children no longer spoke the language of the Bible and this meant a steady erosion of their identity as God's people at the level of thinking and expression and a loss of access to the word of God which effectively paganized them. We are finding ourselves effectively paganized because we have separated our children no longer speak the language of Judah. The Bible. We've lost because of our love affair and we're married to the culture and relevancy and our desires and my thing and my, my whatever, me. We've lost the language of God, which is the Bible. That's why Nehemiah's explosive actions, his beating, his slapping them in the face, as it were, spiritually. That's why we need this word every day to speak to us because we drift it's 14 years later, and the people that said, we will never take their daughters, and we will never give our daughters to them, find themselves bowing their knees to foreign gods, committing spiritual adultery. But, oh, friend, there's grace. There's grace. Look at verse 29. Ah. Remember them, oh, my God, because they had desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Where is there grace here? There's grace in the covenant, that word covenant. Remember the first two prayers. He says, oh God, these heseds, my covenant love, which is fueled by your covenant love, remember that. And then in verse, in verse um, 14, he says, he says, oh God, remember hesed, your steadfast love. He's saying it's your covenant that takes adulterers and idolaters and turns them into worshipers and faithful men and women. But God will not be mocked. Church, we will either be remembered for desecrating God's covenant or honoring it. Which will it be for you? Who will you serve this day? Joshua would say, this day, me and my house, we're serving the Lord. Which will it be for you? For what will you be remembered? Remembered? My prayer is that we would be remembered for honoring God's covenant. May we remember God's covenant love toward us in Christ and may it fuel our repentance and worship of God. May it make us us true worshipers. You see, the mark of a true worshiper is is, is one who is covenantally faithful. That's what th- verses 30 and 31 talk about. This is the, the, the epilogue. This is the conclusion to the book. And what does Nehemiah say? Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the fruits. Remember me, prayer number four, remember me, oh my God, for good. Friends, you worship God when you care for his house, when you obey his commandments, and keep your heart for him alone. You see, the restoration of the walls, that wasn't Nehemiah's greatest work. No, he tells us what his greatest work is right here. He cleansed, he established, he provided. Nehemiah's greatest work was restoring worship. Worship of the true God. Because worship matters to God. And it should matter to us. Does it matter to you how you live your life in daily worship to God? You see, Nehemiah's work was the making of a people. Not just the making of a city. The people of God. And Jesus' work is the making of a people. His church on earth today, that's us. Is this your work? Is this the work of your life? Or is it just a hobby you do on Sundays? For years, Jim Britt has been describing to me life on the farm. We would call, I would mock him because I was in Hialeah drinking Cuban coffee and enjoying the fruits of the land. And he would tell me it's 35 degrees and I'm on a farm milking my goats at 5 in the morning. But you know, I really didn't get it until I went up there to spend five days with him just recently. And then I experienced what the daily life of a South Carolina farmer really is. And may you and I experience what it means to be worshippers of God on a daily basis. May we cry out to God and say, God, remember me, oh my God, for covenant love and faithfulness. May that be your prayer. But here's the puzzling thing, friends. Here's the puzzling thing. Why does this book end on such a down note? By the way, this is the the last book of the, the Old Testament. This is around 430 or 20 or 10 BC. There's silence now for 400 years. This is it. Why does it end that way? Why did it end at the end of chapter 12 with the dedication of the wall and this testimony that they were taking care of the... You know, the temple and they were exposing, they were they're expelling all the foreign wives. Why doesn't why didn't it end there? Why does it end with Israel's failure to keep the covenant? Here's why. Because Israel's covenant failures point us to something better. To Christ. He is the one who succeeded where they failed. He is the one who gives us hope to be a people who worship God in our everyday lives. Why does this book end this way? Because it points to a better covenant made by our Savior, Jesus Christ, who would walk into Jerusalem some 400 years later and give his life to take the curse we so richly deserve and give us the covenant blessings that he won. And he walks into our lives today. Oh, I pray he'd walk into your life today. I pray walk into your life today. And he makes us his people. People who are faithful, but people who are flawed. Like our brothers in Nehemiah 13, we are God's covenant people who can worship God joyously on Sunday and break his covenant shamelessly on Monday. We are simultaneously saints and sinners. That's why we need a Savior. And oh, what a Savior we've been given by our Heavenly Father. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and it is a gospel of grace designed to make idolaters into worshipers, spiritual adulterers into faithful men and women to their God. And I want to leave you with one last biblical illustration. Oh, this is rich. This is rich. This is the power of the gospel to transform idolaters into worshipers of God. Turn to John four twenty-one, Please. John 4.21. And some of you may remember the gospel narrative of this woman at the well. Do you know who she came from? She's one of Sanballat's bunch. She's a Samaritan. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. She lived to the north of Jerusalem. She was part of the enemies. As a matter of fact, as you're turning to John 4, if you remember, at the end of Nehemiah 13... Nehemiah gives an example of this guy Jehoiada and his son marries the daughter of Sanballat. And Nehemiah chased the guy out of the temple, right? Do you know where the guy went? He went across the border to Samaria. And do you know what they did when he got there? They built a temple in Samaria. And that temple was built on Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritans said, don't go to Jerusalem and worship God at that temple. You worship God at this temple. And 400 years later, that temple is still there. And this woman that he's going to talk to is a worshiper in that false temple to a false god. And this is the person he reveals himself to. Not a good Jew in Jerusalem. But Sam Ballot's bunch in Samaria. If that doesn't get you excited, oh my. If you feel like you have sinned, and you've blown it, and and, and like me, you're aware of your sin, God is merciful and gracious. Picking up the the, the narrative in John 4.21, And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, which is true. But the hour is coming. The hour is coming and is now here. (laughs) When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming. She had a bit of the Old Testament. He who is called Christ, when He comes, He will tell us all things. Amazing! Jesus reveals Himself to this woman. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And if you know this narrative, she goes back to the village. This is an adulterous woman. been married five times. And she calls her friends and they come walking to him across the fields. And he says to the the disciples, he says, man, the harvest is white, look it. And when he said that, he wasn't just looking at the grain, he was looking at the people coming across at him, wanting to meet him. And today the harvest is white. Jesus chose this Samaritan woman to reveal himself to her in order to fulfill his plan to save the nations, friends. And he's still doing that. The harvest is ready. Do we see the people? It's got to start with their own hearts. You see? You see, God wants to change us. So that we would be true worshipers like this woman became. We would respond in faith. We would say, remember me, O God. And as God remembers Christ and then calls us, and we recall Christ, and we come to God and say, remember Him. Don't remember me, remember Him. Then... We go from being idolaters to worshipers. And then, God is glorified when His people worship Him before the nations. This is our hope because of Christ's covenant faithfulness. May it be yours. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now. As every head is bowed, Lord, I pray right now that the hard words we've heard. Lord, we feel like we've been in court. And we've had three uh, charges put against us. And, and we've been slapped around a little bit this morning. Maybe some feel like they've been punched. Oh, Lord, you're gracious, you're kind, but these texts are here and they're instructive. And, and I believe what they're saying is, you're, you're heading in the wrong direction. You're going to a place of destruction. Wake up! You're my people. You're my worshipers for my house, keep my covenants, commandments and keep your hearts for me alone. So Lord, I pray, I pray, save those in this room who are as far away from you as Sam Ballett and Tobiah. They're your enemies right now. God have mercy on, on the children that, that, that don't speak the language of Judah. there are children. They have no idea what the Bible says. It's as if they were mute and deaf when it comes to God. And blind. Which is exactly how Scripture describes them. God have mercy, like you did at the woman at the well, a hated Samaritan, the enemy, Sanballat's crowd. And you saved, and you called, and a village came out. A village in Samaria came out and believed, and whole villages in Jerusalem didn't. I don't understand that. But I trust you. And your covenant... Grace and faithfulness. Your has said, O oh God, to your own name and your own good and your own works and your own glory. Pour your spirit out upon us this morning. I pray in Jesus' name.